Riley Murtha, and I'm your host. This is Life and Shit, your weekly safe haven away from all of the artificial bullshit going on out there, where we discuss what it means to live well, what it means to truly feel good, and how we can achieve those things. So thank you so much for being here, and let's get to this week's episode. Okay, so I'm super excited for this conversation. Um, I have someone on the podcast today who has helped me a lot in my journey. Um, Kim Saeed is an expert on narcissism and narcissistic relationships. Um, So welcome, Kim. Thank you so much, Riley. I'm really pleased to be on the show with you today. I'm so looking forward to diving into this and having a conversation about everything that you do because your content and your social media gave me a lot of clarity in a time when I really needed it. And I've had a lot of conversations with people who are going through similar things, but they're not aware that this is kind of a phenomenon that a lot of people experience. So firstly, I'd like to to ask you, how do you describe yourself? Like what, what is it that you do? I am a narcissistic abuse victim advocate is what I like to refer to myself as. Um, I guess I've been one of the first ones to um, sort of join the field. Uh, Gosh, that's been almost 13 years ago. And uh, yeah, even after all this time, a lot of people are just not aware of what they're experiencing. Right. Uh, But I'm also a consultant because I have, you know, business, um, People who reach out to me, you know, therapists who maybe want to help their clients, but they're not sure how. So I'm a a victim advocate, but I'm also a consultant. That's amazing. So how did you end up here? What what was the path that led you to this doing this type of work? I'm curious about your story. I'm glad you asked. I am a survivor of narcissistic abuse. Um, Back when I was going through it, I was teaching. I was a teacher and um, was having a lot of relationship problems. And I did leave that toxic marriage. Um, And I have a webinar that explains in more detail exactly what that experience was like. Um, But then I as a lot of people do, I went on to have two other toxic relationships. And so I guess I have experience with three different types of narcissists, which really helps with that field research (laughs) and helps me understand their mindsets. So yes, I am a survivor. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that you went through that, but also so glad to hear that you, you know, took that experience and are using it to help other people understand what they're going through and empower themselves. I think that's so beautiful. Thank you. Did you say that there's three types of narcissists? Um, Well, I had an experience with three different types. Um, And honestly, you know, I have come across the articles like a lot of other people have, you know, articles that say things like, oh, here are the 17 different types of narcissists. And really, there are not that many. Okay. In reality, there are only three different types of narcissists or narcissism. And those are the overt 
which is the one we're most familiar with and is way more obvious. And then there's the covert, which um, their behaviors are masked so well that it makes it very difficult to pinpoint what's going on in that relationship. And then you have the malignant narcissist and those are the ones that are more similar to uh, psychopaths and sociopaths. Mm. Okay. Wow. I had no idea. I, I haven't heard about that. I guess I haven't done my research fully, <laughs> um, but I'm so glad to be learning about those different types. I've unfortunately had my own different circumstances, a, a variety as well. So I'm interested to hear more about that, but I guess maybe we should start by just talking about in general, what, what is a narcissistic personality or what are we talking about when we use that word? A narcissistic personality is someone who, I mean, of course there's the DSM criteria that's been rehashed millions of times on the internet. But in my opinion, the DSM doesn't really describe how dangerous it is to be in relationships with those types of people. Okay. Yeah. Um, what we're just learning uh, is that narcissists do share similar brain abnormalities as psychopaths and sociopaths. And the main uh, similar similarity is that they don't have empathy. It's mm -hmm. lacking in the centers of the brain that are responsible for empathy. And this is what allows them to manipulate and abuse people with impunity and feel no remorse over it. Right. So I used to do a lot of my research, you know, in the, from the DSM and also academic sites like on Google Scholar. But frankly, the best areas to study to get a more accurate view of narcissism is neuroscience and criminology. Mm. Okay. Because psychology, I was... Um, talking with someone today online and psychology just makes things a little more confusing. It leaves a lot of gray area, but when you get into the neuroscience of it and then also criminology or, or even forensic psychology, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to study the narcissistic personality. And that's fascinating. I mean, I'm very obsessed with the mindset and psychology, sociology, but when you think about it from the perspective of their brains truly functioning differently, that gives you a whole different perspective. How do you define empathy or when you're explaining to someone what is lacking there? Like, what does that look like? Well, empathy, you know, there are a few different, I guess, descriptions of empathy, but empathy is basically the ability to put yourself in someone's shoes. You know, if your best friend lost their spouse, for example, you might feel their pain. You'd be able to understand the impact of that loss. Um, or you may see an animal being abused and you may go to the animal's rescue because you have empathy. Yeah. Um, but narcissists don't experience empathy. What they do engage in is something called cognitive empathy. Um, but what this does is it allows the narcissist to study people and then figure out the best way to manipulate them. It's a lot like 
cult leaders or the sleazy car salesmen. They know what to say and build a rapport with you so that they can then learn the best way to hurt you and manipulate you. So scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what the difference between what defines a sociopath? Sociopaths are a little bit more dangerous than what I like to call the garden variety narcissist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of times, people are dealing with someone who's way more dangerous than a garden variety narcissist. Okay. So a regular narcissist, and I just use regular very, you know, uh, broadly here. Right. They're going to do things like lie and cheat on you and, you know, betray you and scheme up ways to manipulate you and keep you in their lives. But sociopaths, they are not only lacking in empathy, but they're not afraid of consequences. So these are the ones who are generally um, stalking you. They may um, use weapons to intimidate you. They might harm your pet or even kill your pet. Um, These are the individuals who are very dangerous, and a lot of people mistake that and they think they're dealing with the narcissist Mm. and the reason this happens is that narcissists or you know anyone with the cluster b personality they often have overlapping disorders right and that's what makes it difficult to pinpoint oh i'm dealing with this overt narcissist here um, because that's why it's called cluster b usually one personality um, disorder is overlapping with something else. Interesting. And and you know, unless you really, um, unless you really have experience with the research, and I, again, I'm referring to research of neuroscience and criminology, um, then you may not even realize that you're dealing with a very dangerous individual. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That. Is fascinating. So then can you help me understand the difference between the covert, overt, and malignant narcissist personalities? Yes, the overt narcissist is the one who, generally speaking, now they have their differences in their personalities, just like non-disordered people do. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the overt one is the one who charms everyone. They're the life of the party. Often very attractive and boisterous. Um, you know, they're also the ones at the gym just pumping up, you know, and, and showing off their bodies and whatnot. Covert narcissists may do some of those things, but they are more um, secretive and more passive aggressive. Mm. Okay. Um, usually, the covert narcissists are not openly abusing you. Like they may not shout or they may not call you names, but they do other things to manipulate you that make it harder to pinpoint exactly what's happening. Right. And then the malignant narcissist is the one who really enjoys causing pain to other people. And this includes 
the people in their families and even their own children. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, they have more of the dark traits of personality disorders and are often more scheming and, 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 and frankly, more dangerous. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I'm curious how you would, I'm sure that you talk about this often, but how do you teach people to recognize if they might be in or in a relationship or, you know, getting to know someone or in any situation with someone who might be narcissistic? I'm sure there are many warning signs, but are there some really obvious ones or common ones that you lead people towards to look for? Well, it kind of depends on the stage you're at in your relationship, but let's say that you just started dating someone. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's very common, for example, to meet someone online, like on a dating app. And, and there are usually very telling signs in their profiles. And one of the huge ones is they'll put in their profile, no drama. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the ones you really want to look out for because um, a lot of times they're saying that because their past partners have tried to implement boundaries or just didn't like something that was happening and of course narcissistic people don't care about other people's feelings so anything that's brought to their attention is considered drama right yeah that's so interesting because you would see that and you would think oh, yeah, great. I don't like drama. But that's them kind of setting the stage for them to tell you that speaking your truth or coming to them or setting your own boundaries is unacceptable, right? Right. And usually people like that. Now, they could have been very um, hurt by someone and they'll say no drama. But even then, you may not want to become involved with someone like that because if they're putting that in their profile, they're clearly not over what happened (laughs) to them. And so they might not be as emotionally available or as emotionally intelligent as you would want. Right. Yeah. To make that, I find the the bio and the, the tagline that people create for themselves on social media or on dating apps or whatever is so interesting. Like that's the self-identity that you're deciding to represent yourself with. And I always find it so fascinating. Right. Um, Um, That's a great tip though. I've never thought about that. And I have seen that. I I did too. And those were the people I stayed far away from. (laughs) Um, But then there's the love bombing. So let's say you meet someone, you go out on a couple of dates and they are just what they call love bombing you constant messages on social media, constant text messages, you know, just really over the top. And it's sometimes hard to differentiate that from the regular honeymoon period. Right. But with a regular non-disordered person, now, again, generally speaking, they're not going to be over the top like that. They might send you one good morning text and then they might call you, you know, every few days. And that's because they're not trying to smother you. They're not trying to make them the center of your universe when you've only known them for two weeks. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, And usually there is um, 
sort of a um, an urge for them to try to get serious right away. You know, you may have known them a week and they're already calling you their soulmate. Mm. So those are things to be on the lookout for because emotionally healthy people don't do that stuff. Right. Okay. Because frankly, it's, it's inappropriate. You know, you can't really determine whether you're compatible with someone until after that honeymoon period starts to stabilize into something more um, regular and normal. Like right. you can't even decide if you're going to be friends with that person after, you know, till after the honeymoon phase, because you're just going off of chemistry and, you know, biochemicals. Yeah. That's what I was thinking as you were talking to I mean, it's very hormonally driven and we're not able to be logical about it or even see them for who they are. So I have been the target of love bombing many times and I always wonder, well, I've wondered often, how do you differentiate between just regular infatuation and love bombing? And I think you just answered that pretty, pretty nicely and with clarity. But I wonder also, is there a reason why certain people tend to be the target of love bombing? Like, do I have vulnerable written on my forehead or like what, what, what attracts those personality types to certain people? That's a good question and one that comes up a lot. Um, Here's the thing, you know, people believe that we attract narcissists. And I used to believe that too early on when I, you know, started this path. But I've since learned that that's not necessarily true. Mm. Now, there may be things about our mannerisms that are very obvious to manipulators. Like, I remember when I came out of my first toxic marriage uh, or relationship, I wouldn't make eye contact with people. I spent a lot of time looking down at the ground. I was very uh, reserved and I was not very social. And then if I did kind of strike up a conversation with someone, there was a certain mannerism that I engaged in that kind of may have given people the sense that I was vulnerable. Right. But we don't always go out into the world and act that way. What I mean is there are people who aren't codependent, for example, who are also manipulated by narcissistic people. So there, it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. And frankly, um, sometimes narcissists find it a great challenge to get involved with someone who's very successful and has confidence and then they slowly and methodically break them down. That's right. So we're not yeah. really attracting them. What happens is we get into the relationship and then we accept them. Right. Okay. Oh my gosh. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like being triggered by this, but in a good way, it's very insightful. And it, when you said that, I remembered I have had a therapist in the past say that some narcissists really do like the challenge of finding someone who has something that they don't have in themselves or some kind of, you know, process of identifying something that they want to conquer, right? And then they'll pursue and pursue until she used the analogy of a goat ramming a fence until it comes down. And I guess that's a perfect segue into the next kind of phase of that. Like what happens when you are love bombed and let's say you do kind of you are swayed. Like, obviously it feels nice to have someone kind of be obsessed with you and give you that kind of attention. So, I mean, it makes sense that sometimes we do fall victim, right? 
what's the next step after that? Like, how do we know that we're falling into a narcissist trap and that it was in fact love bombing? What follows that? Well, usually the way that you start becoming aware that something's not quite right is that you're putting up with things that you never thought you would put up with. Mm. So once they have you hooked psychologically, that's when they, you know, often will start violating boundaries. Like they might start flirting with the wait staff or they might make a lot of comments about the way other people look. Um, and then they'll start cheating a lot of times or they'll lie. And so if you find yourself tolerating those kinds of things, that's a sign that you are in a toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, we weren't taught these things. And so what we were taught growing up, at least me and my generation, um, is, oh, you need to give them another chance, turn the other cheek, you know, what would happen if someone treated you that way and didn't offer you trust? Um, but we can't be like that anymore. No. I think, yeah, the um, generational difference is really important, too, because, like, my my parents' generation is just, like, you get married and then you just, you know, you just figure it out. You just work with each other and you stay with each other. And it's so likely that so many people are – experiencing this and our generation is a little bit more well equipped to walk away or notice these things or make changes but I think we're still not we still don't have the tools to recognize toxic relationships the way that we need to I think you're so right about that absolutely um and we're we're just now seeing the very unfortunate outcome of of outcomes of that kind of advice, you know, stick with it by all means, um, stay in it for the kids. And really, uh, we're not doing our children any favors by staying in toxic relationships or toxic marriages because we're setting them up for failure in their lives. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's the, the example that they're seeing and works conditioned by our environment as children, you know, subconsciously. So if that's, what we're witnessing, then we assume that that is the way the world is and what we should be doing as well, right? Right. Um, so recognizing when you are kind of out of alignment with your own boundaries, what is the, like, I guess my question is, why is it so hard to get out of this? Because I think, I mean, I've been in this situation a few times and it's like, there is a kind of knowing there is a part of your soul that knows that something's not right. And, you know, you have this kind of misalignment within you. Why is it so hard to remove ourselves? What many people don't realize is that the reason it's so hard, you know, we, we've heard of trauma bonding. Um, when trauma can actually bond you to someone else, even more strongly than positive, um, events, but we develop Stockholm syndrome. And that element is probably the biggest reason that it's so hard to leave, but we also develop a biochemical addiction. These relationships, because of the intermittent uh, reinforcement of, you know, one day they love you and the next day they hate your guts. And so in your psyche, you're trying to work up to that moment of euphoria again, where they're saying you're, you know, the love of their life and whatnot. 
So over time, we develop not only a biochemical and psychological addiction, but we are developing Stockholm Syndrome. And it's very, very similar to how cult leaders interact with their followers. Um, and I've written an article on that as well, you know, eight ways narcissists are like cult leaders because they use the very same psychological manipulation techniques. Uh, and this is why when people leave cults, there's a huge period of deprogramming. Mm-hmm. And it's like that when you leave toxic relationships, you have to deprogram and you have to reset your um, your central nervous system and you have to relearn what relationship boundaries look like and how to stop engaging in old patterns. Right. I think that's so important. And I think that's not happening very often, right? But the the societal norm is to get out of a relationship and find someone new. There's a very, it's very lacking that, that period of actually reprogramming and healing and like spending some time figuring out why that happened, um, which leads us into that pattern, right? Right. And this is why I encourage people who have left toxic relationships to wait at least a year before dating again, because if you haven't achieved a certain level of healing, um, which basically means you have to be ready to walk away. And most people aren't in that space because what happens is they leave one toxic relationship and go right into another one because their trauma bond will transfer from that first toxic partner over to the new one because the psyche is not really recognizing, okay, this is the same dynamic uh, as what I just left, but it feels so familiar. And we kind of engage in this sort of repetition compulsion, um, you know, and going into toxic relationships over and over. That's why I myself had three. And then I, after the last one, I I forced myself to be alone for almost two years. And I did a lot of healing work during that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's makes so much sense, but I've never heard that about a trauma bond transferring. And it makes complete sense to me because if you haven't had the time and the space to unpack what you've been through, familiarity will get us, right? Like it doesn't matter. It I will. think about that often. It's like a comfort zone is not always comfortable. It's often really uncomfortable. It should be called a familiarity zone because it's just what we know. It's what we're used to. It has nothing to do with it being comfortable in a sense. Like it's not pleasant, but it's what we know. And subconsciously we're drawn to that familiarity, right? Right. And that's a brilliant point that you just made. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's so much. This is so fascinating to me, but I think it's just so important to talk about as well. Um, there's a couple of like buzz buzzwords, I guess, when it comes to narcissism that came up a lot for me when I was starting to talk about or learn about or educate myself about this pattern or about this phenomenon. Um, and I think the first one, and this ties into that kind of transition from love bombing into the the toxicity of the the dynamic. But what does it mean to be discarded by a narcissist? Discarded. Honestly, when you're discarded, there's the appearance that 
you're just like chopped liver. They don't want anything else to do with you. At that point, they've already cheated. Um, now, again, this is just general stuff. Not all narcissists cheat, but most of them do. Um, or they're already, you know, being verbally abusive. They're already very clearly not concerned with you or your feelings. But oftentimes, the discard phase is not even real. It's just another part of the abuse cycle. And so by that time, when they're discarding you, they've generally found a new source of supply. Right. And usually what happens is... When you think you've been discarded and then you see them with someone else, that's when the triangulation phase begins. So the narcissist is in a very prime uh, space at that time because they have their old partner who they who thinks they're being discarded. And so they're going to be very uh, generous with forgiveness or you know, wanting the narcissist to come back and to choose them over the new supply. Um, by that point, the narcissist is going to treat that person like dirt, but they also love it because they have one person on one hand begging the narcissist to come back. And then they have the new supply who doesn't know the narcissist for who they are, who's mirroring back everything the narcissist wants to believe about themselves. They're the greatest thing. They're a great lover, you know, yeah. all that. So Oh, yeah, that makes, sense. <laughs> that makes sense. And what is, I, I find that fascinating, that that idea of the narcissistic supply. Essentially, narcissists are using other humans to gas themselves up, right? Like essentially fuel that part of themselves. Is that what that means? It It, it is what it means. So you have the emotional fuel that the narcissist is getting. Um, even though the narcissist can't reciprocate those things, it makes the narcissist feel good about themselves. Um, but then supply can also be what that person is giving to the narcissist. Um, you know, cleaning up all their messes, taking up for them in public, um, maybe doing all the cleaning and housework, basically doing the job of two people in that relationship so the narcissist doesn't have to. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. That makes sense. Um, that, that leads me into another question. Another therapist that I was speaking to about this topic, she said to me that narcissists are more likely to be in some careers than others, and that can help you um, protect yourself. Have you heard that or do you believe that? I personally believe that narcissists can be in any career field, but yeah. they do tend to enjoy getting into careers that are traditionally thought of as helping careers. So, um, you know, there are a lot of therapists, for example, who are narcissists, and I've come into contact with several of them uh, in my work. Um, you know, a lot of people... Um, may follow a certain public figure thinking they're the greatest thing and not realizing that person is a narcissist. Right. These careers where people generally have power. I read an article about it and it said that um, sports and coaching and those types of positions where, or teaching where people have, you know, that kind of that narcissistic supply within their position is something to be aware of. Do you agree with that? 
Yes. And, you know, police, the police, um, the police field also has a lot of narcissists and it's really quite scary if you find yourself involved with one of those because they can basically do whatever they want and you will have very little help. Yeah, it is scary. And I've been thinking about that in terms of even just like CEOs and powerful management positions, right? They're often, maybe not even just narcissists, but they tend to often, like the clients, a lot of my clients have really challenging bosses and management and things who are really dysregulated emotionally. And it's it's really detrimental to society because the ripple effect of that is like affecting their employees, which affects their families, which affects, you know, everybody. It's it's massive impact. So it's really scary to think that there could be narcissists in these super powerful roles in society. It is scary, but it's actually happening all over the place. Yeah. Wow. Even in churches. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, another word that I came across um, during my research was breadcrumbing. Can you explain to me what that means? Breadcrumbing, yes, I can try to explain. Um, <laughs> it's basically, I don't know if you've heard the saying, um, don't accept crumbs when you deserve the whole loaf. Yeah. So it can be something as subtle as, okay, so the narcissist has been abusive towards you for two weeks straight, and then for a period of two hours on a Tuesday, they are not abusive. Right. That's a breadcrumb. Yeah. It's um, like a glimmer of not, hope, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or you haven't heard from them for three weeks because they're giving you the silent treatment and then all of a sudden they'll send you a smiley face emoji. Beautiful. Which is a perfect <laughs> segue into my next term and question. Um, stonewalling. Is stonewalling a common characteristic of a narcissist or is that just a general toxic trait that people can embody um well stonewalling in and of itself may not be healthy but stonewalling is a little different from silent treatment so stonewalling could be a person's reaction to they're feeling overwhelmed and they don't know what to say or they're afraid to say anything because they might say something hurtful Mm. so that's why a lot of times you know well you you might it may manifest like this well I'm not comfortable with this conversation so I need time alone right now I don't want to talk right now Mm -hmm. that could be a form of stonewalling but that doesn't make it narcissistic. What makes it narcissistic is you point out something that your partner did who you suspect is narcissistic. And in response, they pack a bag and leave the house and you don't hear from them for a month. Yes. That's the silent treatment. And that is done um, with very negative intent. It's a form of punishment and manipulation. It's also a form of abuse. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm curious about that because I guess it was always a a difficult thing for me to navigate because people do have a right to space, right? And it's a really confusing thing when I guess you're trying to understand, is this just someone being overwhelmed? Kind of what I'm hearing from you explain is there's kind of two sides to that. Sometimes people are overwhelmed and they need space, which seems fair, right? But then sometimes it is intentional and malicious, like you said, and with, you know, 
intent to be manipulative or to make somebody feel bad. And that can be really confusing to navigate. One way to look at it is like this. Um, when someone is stonewalling, uh, if, if they're not coming from a bad place, it might happen just very occasionally. Like, I don't know, um, maybe every six months, right? Right. Because if you're in a healthy relationship, number one, you're not going to be arguing a whole lot. Right. You have established healthy patterns of communication and compromise. So that makes your partner feel emotionally safe. And so you're not going to have so much stonewalling. Yes. But with silent treatment, it's something that's done on a regular basis. And it starts to have an effect on your ability to function in the world. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, and do you think that that in part has to do with like attachment style? I think like my understanding of people's attachment style would be an avoidant person would have more of a tendency to silent treatment or stonewall. Do you think that has a role to play in that or is that something entirely different? I do believe in attachment styles, like most targets of narcissistic abuse are going to have what's considered an insecure or an anxious attachment style. And since I first discovered this concept of attachment styles, you know, people are kind of creating different labels and categories. Yeah, there's so many um, <laughs> Yeah, but with narcissists, what happens is people start confusing that um, Okay, let, most narcissists have what's called an avoidant attachment style. Yeah. And see, where people get into trouble is they think they can help the narcissist heal that avoidant attachment style. That's right. Yeah. You're, and, like you're speaking right to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you can't. For, for one, a person or a, let's say narcissist. Um, they're not interested in healing their, you know, what we're calling attachment style because they don't think they have a problem. Everyone else is the problem. Exactly. Yes. And that's why I feel so sorry for people when I happen to see, maybe it comes up on my Instagram feed, you know, someone's talking about attachment styles and here's how to have a, you know, relationship with a, an avoidant attachment style. Mm -hmm. And this draws people in because, oh, this is what's happening and this is all I have to do and I can yeah. make this better. Yeah. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah. That is a bit of a, a bit of a misleading belief, right? That Oh, I understand. That's exactly what I went through at one point. I learned about attachment theory, which for anyone listening who isn't familiar, I mean, to break it down, you can tell me if this makes sense the way that I tend to explain it. We have different ways that we get our emotional needs met, right? And an avoidant attachment person is someone who will distance themselves versus someone who's anxious requires like more closeness, connection and resolution to to any kind of emotional or discomfort or conflict. Is that basically correct? Yes. So when you um, believe that you understand that and you can just resolve that, that likely keeps people stuck in that dynamic a lot longer than they, they should be, right? Right. And this is exactly why, you know, intelligent people or academics or people who are very analytical, right? It's, it's often harder for them to leave toxic relationships because they've always used their analytical thinking to solve problems or 
create solutions, uh, but but they they don't work in toxic relationships. Mm, and yeah. so, it there. I mean, I was kind of like that at one point in time, thinking, oh, I can do all this research and I can figure out what the loopholes are and I can make this work. Um, because it had always worked for me in the past in other areas of my life. Right. But it just doesn't work with toxic relationships. Well, yeah, it makes sense that you think you can reason your way out of it because if you're a logical person and you're growth oriented and self-reflective, you assume that most other people will be the same, right? I think that was my kind of breaking point moment when I started to truly understand that there is no reasoning, there is no teaching, there is no, you know, helping these types of personalities because it's, well, I guess that's my next question. Is it impossible or is it just really, really hard? To, I guess for a, a narcissist to change their ways or to heal. I personally have never encountered a single incident where a narcissist made lasting change. Wow. And I'm talking about all the millions of people who visit my website, people who leave comments on my blog, who email me, my social media, my coaching clients. Never once have I come across a case where a narcissist actually made lasting change. Now, if you are following therapists online, for example, they may sometimes say that narcissists can change because Narcissists are really skilled at bamboozling their counselors, especially mm. if it's a couples therapy situation. Yeah. But what's what we're not seeing is these changes manifesting outside of these therapy offices. Yeah. And it's just another telling sign that you're dealing with someone who's very manipulative. Um, but back to your question, I've never seen it happen. And, um, you know, I have a colleague, a dear colleague, who's a neuropsychologist, and she hasn't seen it happen either. And she's done way more research than I have. Wow. Well, that is extremely powerful, right? Like that knowledge, that realization for me, at whatever point that clicked that like, I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle here, like it's time to cut my losses. But I think that's really important for people listening to hear that. But it's also really sad. I feel genuinely so bad for those people to not have the ability to grow and to heal and to, you know, transform into a new way of being. You know, I I can relate to that. I, I used to feel that way too. Um, but I guess I don't have as much sympathy for them as I used to because I've heard so many awful horror stories from their victims and their targets. Mm -hmm. And I just can't, I just don't have any sympathy for them anymore. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I feel very like sometimes I feel like I hate them, uh, which is not necessarily healthy, but when you're listening to a parent whose child took their life because of an abusive, you know, their other parents have, was abusive it's really hard to hold space yeah um it would be for those kinds of emotions I'm that's another question that I have is and it comes up for me often and I can't reconcile it so maybe you can help me understand this are these people evil geniuses or is this happening kind of below the surface subconsciously like are they truly that calculated and 
manipulative and have all of these plots and plans in mind? Or is this just playing out kind of on autopilot based on the way that they are? A lot of it is playing on autopilot. Um, I mean, with narcissists, they do sort of fine tune their manipulations uh, with each relationship that they're in. And a lot of times now, especially, they're also reading the articles about narcissism and they are going to therapy not to change, but to learn how to better manipulate. Um, so a lot of it's not really intentional, but that doesn't mean they don't mean to hurt people, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's hard to understand, especially with the people that I've had contact with, because this is going to sound kind of shady, but I don't, I never thought of them as being highly intelligent, like, or more intelligent than me, perhaps to think that someone could manipulate me and be that calculated and that, you know, malicious and insidious about it. I'm like, do they truly have the capability to sit down and come up with this master plan from the beginning? And part of me just felt naturally that it must have been their subconscious, like them finding ways to meet their needs, but not necessarily being conscious of what they're doing. Well, I mean, let's take lying, for example, before they utter anything, when they're about to give you a response, they know they're lying, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And a lot of times you even know they're lying because you already have proof that they lied. Right. Um, Let's see, the thing is, you know, we've all heard of narcissistic projection, where the narcissist accuses you of feeling and doing the things that they feel and do, even when their accusations are utterly false. But we generally don't think about how their victims engage in, in some, you know, I call it empathic projection, where we project feelings of empathy, love, and compassion onto the narcissist where there are none there. Mm-hmm. So I think of the one of the biggest struggles for targets of narcissistic abuse is just accepting that there are people like that in the world. Like, yeah. But we know about serial killers and we know about pedophiles and in my personal opinion, narcissists are not really that different from people like that. Yeah. It's so hard to imagine, I guess, because I'm an empath. (laughs) It's just so hard for me to comprehend that state of being and that kind of consciousness. But you're right. I mean, there definitely are people who are doing crazy, horrible things in the world. So it's, it's a possibility for sure. Um, when you're talking about that that projection, it kind of reminded me of one last term that I had a bit of a hard time understanding at first, but it comes up a lot and I feel like it's becoming more and more talked about. Um, so I want to make sure that people do understand the concept of gaslighting. What does that look like and how do you know when you're being gaslit? <laughs> gaslighting, um, okay, let's just use an example. Um, let's say you have a narcissistic partner or someone who you suspect is narcissistic And you keep having your friends coming to you and saying, I saw your partner at the club with another person, or I saw them at the restaurant, or even I saw them kissing someone in their car. And the narcissist will say, well, that wasn't me. Your friends either telling you a lie or they just don't know what they're talking about because that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. But you keep having the same thing happen over and over. 
So um, gaslighting is a way that the narcissist tries to manipulate your cognitive awareness of the things that are happening. Right. Um, you know, the old example is, oh, they'll, they'll move your car keys around the house and say, oh, I didn't touch them. But that's a very rudimentary uh, example of gaslighting, although they still do that quite often. But it's, it's gaslighting is just trying to get you to believe things that aren't true. Right. Okay. And that is extremely damaging, right? I feel like that plays a huge role in the overall kind of damage that happens when you are in that type of relationship because you start to lose yourself and question yourself and you you start to wonder what your perception of reality really is and like everything just becomes distorted, like you said, right? So when you that starts to happen, we get out of touch with who we are and what our values are, I find. And then that kind of leads me into the next question that I have for you is how do people need to heal from? Like what is the damage that's done and what are the skills that we need to gain or what is the healing that needs to happen in order to become more whole again after this type of abuse? Well, that's a good question. Um, and it, it varies depending on the individual. But one way to think about it is narcissistic abuse was a long process. And so in a similar way, the process of healing is going to be somewhat, um, it doesn't necessarily have to take a long time. Healing actually depends a lot of times on what a person does after the relationship is over. Mm. So one thing that I see all the time is people believing they can keep the narcissist in their life and still heal. Right. This is why it's more difficult for people who share custody of minor children because they have to have some kind of contact. And, and that describes me, but I use something called extreme modified contact. I created that um, concept or that idea many years ago. Um, even though I share my youngest son with my narcissistic ex, uh, he doesn't call my cell phone. I never talk to him unless we're exchanging our son. He's not in my life at all. And from the day I moved out, he's never once stepped foot into my new residence. And I've had a few over the years. So no contact is sealing that person out of your life as much as possible because there's no way to heal from trauma when you're still feeding the trauma. Right. I love that that you said that because I've had that question from clients and people that I've had discussions with is like, what do you do when you have to co-parent with a narcissist and they're in your reality indefinitely? Like that is super challenging for people. Obviously no contact is ideal, but sometimes, or I guess another option to that would be like if they're in your family or they're one of your parents, like that, that's really tough. So I, I like that you've developed a, a strategy around that. I have, and it's really worked well for me. Um, but you know, if you don't share custody, then really no contact, full blown, no contact is the very best way to create space to start healing. But having said that, you know, a lot of people go no contact and they kind of stop there. Right. Um, But if you don't engage in some kind of healing work, then the trauma is just going to stew and fester. And that's what happens when people are kind of cyber snooping on the narcissist and looking (laughs) at the new supplies, Instagram and, 
you know, making up all these stories in their minds and, um, you know, like, oh, the narcissist loves the new supply more than they ever loved me. That's just the story. Even though it's a very convincing one that the narcissist, you know, puts on, uh, it's just never true. Right. Um, so it really depends. People, you know, time does not heal all wounds. So we have to engage in healing work. So instead of doing healing work, a lot of people are, uh, like I said, doom scrolling on Instagram or Facebook. And they're in these groups where no one's really making any sort of forward progress. Mm. Um, and they're doing hours and hours of research on narcissism. And that does have its place in the very beginning. Right. But there does come a point where you have to let that go and turn your focus on your healing. Otherwise you're going to be stuck years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very valid. And I, my own kind of journey through this, I find my kind of core wound that I'm still working through is just trust, right? Like I have, I find I have trust issues with people who are pursuing me. I have a hard time trusting people, hard time, but it's also with the self-trust piece, right? I feel like I've lost my ability to know who I should be trusting and putting myself in situations that are so abusive and so damaging. It, it, it does something to the relationship to self. Do, have you found that as well? That is so common. I used to be in that space too. And I was like, how in the world can I ever trust other people? But here's the thing. We don't have to trust other people if we can trust ourselves. And so what that might look like is, okay, say you leave a toxic relationship, you do a little bit of healing work, and you think you're ready to start dating again. So instead of falling back into the patterns of, you know, when red flags or something, even if it's not a blatant red flag, but it just makes you feel weird. Mm -hmm. Like, um, again, maybe you're at a, a date and you're having dinner and they start flirting with, you know, the waiter or the waitress, um, or they're just doing things really inappropriately. Like I remember way back in the day, it was after I'd left my toxic first toxic, you know, relationship. And I, I had not done any healing back then. I didn't even know about narcissism really. Yeah. And this was our very first date and he brought his like seven year old daughter And his daughter was playing on the swings and he's over there just kind of mauling me trying to maul me on the park bench and kissing and carrying on trying to fondle me. And I was like, dude, this is highly inappropriate. First of all, you don't know me. And secondly, your daughter's over here watching everything. Yeah, weird. (laughs) So it's just, you know, you have to know what your boundaries and your deal breakers are before getting into a new relationship. Mm. And if you know what your boundaries are, there's no wiggle room there. If someone, you know, lies to you and you know, and you figure it out, then that person's probably not going to be a good, you know, relationship partner or they're, you know, they're, they say they want to be exclusive and then you discover they're dating or talking to other people. Um, You know, we, we have to be willing to walk away when those things happen. Yeah. I love that. And I've been working on that with myself and with my clients as well. And I love what you said about, well, obviously boundaries, but the blatant red flags, we always wait for like the huge red flag, but I've started to work with my clients on identifying not only the red flags, but the the green flags. What, what 
do you like what's leading you in the right direction? And also the yellow flags, like what, what do you need to just have awareness around and slow down and maybe get curious about, right? Right. Um, so green flags would be things like they're consistent. Mm. So they're not running hot and cold and you are able to feel emotionally safe around them. Now I wouldn't, encourage anyone to start spilling their guts to someone that they've just met you know that that is not healthy either so if we go out on a date with someone we don't want to talk about our past relationships and how they didn't work out that's not really conversation material for a first date or it shouldn't be um we have to let people earn our trust before we open up to them like that right and so a green flag would be someone following social, you know, norms. They're not going to ask you, oh, well, what happened to your last marriage? How did that end? What happened? You know, because that's like an interview. They're trying to see if you're going to pass their litmus test. That's none of their <laughs> business. You just met that person, right? Yes. Um, green flags is consistency. Uh, if, you know, they want to maintain your dignity, they don't raise their voice or shout at you they're not calling you names Um, they're just being very generous and loving you know you can have a a real friendship with that person right so the green flags make you feel emotionally safe Mm -hmm. and there aren't going to be behaviors that are the exact opposite so in other words they're not going to love you one day you're the love of their life. They can't believe they never met you. And then two days later, there's a problem with you. What's wrong with you? I can't believe you're acting this way. Right. That's a yellow or a red flag. Right. The yellow flags are okay. Well, maybe you don't know if they're cheating, but there's that weird phone call coming in at 11 o'clock every night and and they either silence it or go off to a different room. Mm -hmm. That's a yellow flag. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I love the concept of yellow flags because I think we just think in terms of red flags and that's kind of where the breach of self-trust happens when we're identifying those things and not knowing what to do with them. Right. And I think getting really clear on our boundaries, like you said, is so important in building that trust up. But I think also our self-worth is an indicator of whether we're going to allow those boundaries to be passed by or we're able to maintain them, right? Because I think sometimes we set the boundaries, we know what our intentions are, but then we allow people to step over them or we make exceptions for people just because we want that closeness and we don't know our worth. Right. And that's how we do get ourselves into trouble. Again, it's that empathic projection where we just want to be open and loving and transparent with everyone, but we can't do that anymore. You know, that doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go into every new relationship being on high alert and being suspicious of everything because that's not going to work either. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to get to a place where you have learned from your past relationships, but you also go into it. Now, if you're going on a first date with someone, um, there should have been some kind of vetting process for that. So. If you meet, you know, like I'll use myself as an example, you know, when I was on the dating sites last time, I was on all the expensive paid dating sites and most of the people, I'd say a good 90% of them 
I could tell there was something not quite right. And I didn't even have conversations with those people or if they wanted extra pictures or, you know, or if they wanted to meet it right away. Yeah. I have told people, look, I'm not comfortable meeting just yet. Can we chat for a little bit longer and get a feel for one another? Mm-hmm. And someone who's really looking for like a long-term relationship, I mean, assuming that's what you're looking for, they're going to be okay with that. Right. They're not going to pressure you into now. I'm not, I don't do that. I, I need to meet you now. So, I, you know, and whatever excuse they use, that is a, I would consider that a red flag. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have to have a vetting process. We don't want to just nosedive right into another relationship when we don't even know that person really. Yeah, I think that is the challenge, especially in my personal experience, but I've talked to other people about this as well, is kind of finding that balance of learning how to trust yourself again and kind of letting the, the walls down a little bit, starting to let people in and not just, you know, jumping in with both feet. I mean, navigating that process of, learning a new way to get to know people and having that new perspective and having, you know, some new tools of, of learning when people have the right intentions or not. Right. Yeah. I guess this is a selfish question, but I'm wondering if there's, is there one specific thing that you could do to repel narcissists? Like, is there one thing that they hate that you could embody that would make sure that they don't consider you a potential supply? Um, that's a good question. You know, it, it, it's not necessarily that we can repel them by looking a certain way or acting a certain way, especially if we haven't really met them. Let's say if you meet them in a bar, there's nothing you can do to really repel them. Yeah. Um, because they're going to try with everyone. If they see you and they're interested in you as a target, you can do or say things that you think might repel users, but in their mind, they're used to being rejected or they're used to being called out. And so it doesn't even bother them. Mm. So I'll tell you what does repel them though, is when you have those boundaries and deal breakers, right? right? Like if you tell them, for example, um, you know, I don't agree with porn uh, and I don't want my partner engaging in that. And then you find out they're doing it. Um, you don't stick around and see if they'll quit. I mean, for me, that's an immediate deal breaker mm-hmm. because I've already made it clear that that's a deal breaker by that point. And so if they're doing it, then I know I'm not compatible with them. Right. And honoring yourself in that way, for sure. Right. And knowing that it's time to move on. What would you suggest as an act of building that trust back in your relationship to self so that you have the ability to walk away in those moments? One way to approach these situations is this, okay? Would you encourage your loved one, like a parent or a young child, an adult child who's, you know, entering relationships, if that were someone you cared and loved, uh, would you encourage them to try to work it out if these things were happening to them? Right. I like that perspective. You have to have the same care and compassion for yourself as you would somebody you love and care for. That's beautiful. I love that. And that's kind of an easy, not easy, but it's a great like anchor question that you can return to if you are starting to feel confused in those scenarios. Right. Amazing. I think I have one final question and this one is maybe odd. I don't know, but it's something that I've noticed in people 
while I'm having conversations around trying to understand if we're dealing with a narcissist or in relationship with a narcissist, do you find that people question themselves in terms of like, am I the narcissist? Am I a narcissist? Do people often get kind of pulled into that like mirroring or that feeling that potentially they could be narcissistic or the problem? Yes. And that's because narcissistic partners try to make them feel they're, they try to make their victims and their targets feel like they're the problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the mistake that a lot of people make is, first of all, you don't have to pinpoint someone or label them a narcissist to understand that the relationship is unhealthy for you. Right. Like I had one coaching client who told me about how her husband lies and cheats and how he's mean to their children, but she didn't feel good leaving because she couldn't pinpoint him as a narcissist. And I'm thinking, well, just pretend that that label doesn't even exist. Yeah. Right. Okay. The way your relationship is right now, is that something you want to continue? Right. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of victims do think that they are the narcissist. And I'm going to tell you what, narcissists are not worried and sitting around being concerned about whether they're narcissists. <laughs> yeah, that's and kind not. <laughs> of what I came back to, too, I, with a friend or with myself. It's like, I don't think narcissists are worried about being narcissists. So if you're asking that question, you're usually probably not the problem, right? Right. Now, I have had over the last, I don't know, decade, maybe a handful of people signed up for a coaching session with me and they start started talking about their relationship partner and I can tell it I can sense it because it almost seems as if they're reading from a script there's no emotion there and I, I, I later discovered that a few times that that happened it was because the narcissist found out that their partner was following me or had even signed up for a session with me and they're coming back and and doing that. So they can go back and say, Oh, I had a session with Kim and she said, you're the narcissist, right? I've had that happen a few times, even though I would never, you know, uh, intentionally engage in that. And I've even had one narcissist say, well, I really love her and, and I don't feel like I should, um, have to walk away from this. And basically the guy was stalking his partner and trying to get approval for that. Wow. I and didn't realize they would I go didn't. to such lengths. <laughs> yes. Scary. But I also guess I had a belief that narcissists were very unlikely to seek. Well, I guess you already said this. They were, would be unlikely to seek therapy to truly grow or gain from it, but they might go through the motions of it for their own, for their own reasoning. Right. Right. And frankly, I've had a lot of therapists tell me, well, all of my narcissistic clients are there by a court order, you know, right? (laughs) narcissists didn't even want to be in therapy, but it was, you know, demanded that they do that. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'm curious about your clients. Is it more, I assume then it's more so victims of narcissistic abuse that seek you out and you're not dealing with narcissists directly? Yeah, I don't work with narcissistic people, at least not if I'm aware of it. I'm sure I've had a few, you know, they do write into my blog a lot or they'll email me. Oh, yes. But I don't don't work with them because I know I've got their ticket and I'm just, you know, I already know enough about them to know that there's nothing I can do to help them. Right. That makes total sense. But I think you mentioned them writing into your blog. 
And I wondered if you were engaging with them or working with them in some way, but that makes total sense. Um, oh, this has been so informative, Kim, and really healing actually to kind of just have this conversation and lay this all out on the table and get, get some clarity around some of these things. So I so appreciate your time and your energy yes. and you sharing all of your knowledge with me and with everyone here. Well, thank you, Riley. And, and thanks again for having me on your show. And I'm so glad that everything resonated with you like it did. And, um, you know, thank you to your followers, too, who are who were tuning into the show today. Of course. And how can they find you? I mean, you have a wealth of knowledge. And it sounds like you have some really incredible resources to help people understand their experience and to heal and to move through this, this experience. So um, what are the options if people would like to reach out to you or potentially work with you? Well, my website is kimsaid.com and, you know, I have a, a library of articles there. Um, and then you can also sign up for my free 14-day um, healing roadmap, which is really educational and, and supportive. And then I'm also on social media, Instagram and Facebook. Um, and people can, if they want to, uh, I do have two programs, uh, especially designed for narcissistic abuse victims and survivors. And I also offer coaching. Amazing. I love that you have that free resource. I'll, I'll link all of those resources in our, in our episode notes here. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really, really helpful. And I'm sure people are going to get so much value out of this. So again, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation. And one last thing that I wanted to mention that I'm finding, I, I'm excited to hear about, and it's giving me hope, is the fact that, and I can edit this out if you don't want to share this, but you okay. said that you are in a, a beautiful, healthy relationship right now. I am. And, you know, it's kind of interesting how it all came about because I wrote down sat down one day and I wrote out a soulmate wish list and it was a list of 43 character traits I wanted my partner to have 43 and that's amazing 43 <laughs> character traits nothing to do even with appearance wow. and it's just like the universe just served up this partner to me who was even more than what I asked for Oh. he's always been consistent. He loves my kids. You know, I'm moving in with him. Um, he's never raised his voice. He's never, uh, been impatient with me. I mean, he's very generous and very loving, you know, and he's also a masculine guy. And so that makes it even more, um, appealing to me because here's this masculine guy and, you know, we have this sort of stereotype about masculine men, but he's a healthy masculine man. So I feel comfortable leaning into him and, and he lets me do that. And he offers great support and affection. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. I love to hear that. Do you believe in the law of attraction? I do. Um, I used to be a, a certified law of attraction practitioner, um, but I have found over the years that Sometimes the concepts are a little bit too black and white for trauma survivors. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily uh, 
uh, want to encourage someone to follow the law of attraction when they're first coming out of their toxic relationships because it can actually hurt people more than help them. Interesting. But I think once you've gotten to a certain point in healing and if you're ready for it, then yes, the law of attraction is, I think, beautiful. Yeah, that's magical that you wrote down such a detailed criteria and the universe delivered that to you. I love that so much. I feel like (laughs) that has happened to me in the past and I, you know, sometimes we're not clear enough and when you're on this journey of getting to know yourself and evolving and, you know, getting to know what's important to you, sometimes you miss things. And I find every time I get that clarity, someone appears, right? And it's not always, it doesn't always need to be a relationship, but it's just that reaffirmation of, yes, these people exist. And if you know what you want and your self-worth is there and you're putting yourself out there, then they will find you. That's right. Because what you're looking for is also looking for you. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm so happy for you, Kim. I'm so, so grateful for you. Thank you. Um, I think that's Thank the perfect you, way to end this. And I wish you a beautiful rest of your week. And I, I thank you again so sincerely for all of your energy and knowledge today on this episode. Well, it's my pleasure and honor, Riley. You take care now. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Okay. okay thanks. Bye. Bye.